This message is brought to you by Living Faith Church. You can find us on the web at livingbyfaith.com. I don't know about you, but I think it's incredibly good news, actually. To me, it's such a relief. I tell you, you know, if I never preached a word of this, quite frankly, I've told my wife sitting on our porch, if I didn't preach a word of this, the peace and the joy that has given to me is worth all because I can remember living those days. See, I, I, this is not, you know, I was taught the same stuff most everybody else was taught and uh, lived in fear and, uh, you know, lived your whole life in fear and, and uh, you know, skepticism. And even your worldview is skewed by a doomsday type mentality. And every time we see something bad happens, our worldview is so skewed that we think, oh, this is one of the signs. But, uh, you know, after it fails over and over and over again, you start to think, see, I start thinking of the world in a different way than I used to think of it. As a matter of fact, I start, you know, think, uh, you know, that old song, I think to myself, what a beautiful world. Now, I do, I realize there's some very real problems in our world, and that's the thing that I think helps us to understand that the purpose of why we're understanding a lot of this is so that we can see that God is interested in doing something in our world. Not just getting us to heaven. How many know he will not fail? He will accomplish his purpose. He knows the end from the beginning, and he will do all of his pleasure. And if he could foretell the stuff like he did in the book of Daniel and be precise and exact, like I said, if I was not a believer and I was testing the validity of a God or, or, or a book that talked about a God, and I could see the time stuff that's put in this book, just like I showed you in the first session, that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, would be 483 years and exactly 483 years. He stands up and says, the Spirit of the Lord God has anointed me. And then everything that was prophesied transpired just like Daniel said it would. And I don't know if we realize sometimes how many times even in the New Testament that these Old Testament writers are quoted. Even Jesus himself, when he was standing before Caiaphas, and Caiaphas says to, to him, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Jesus quotes Daniel chapter 7, which we're going to go to here in just a few moments. And he says, he says to Caiaphas, his answer to Caiaphas, when Caiaphas said, are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. He said, and from henceforth, you, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and glory. Great glory is a direct quote from Daniel chapter 7. And he says, you will see the Son of Man. Daniel is the only book that calls him the Son of Man. And that's why he identifies himself as the Son of Man. And that's why Caiaphas ran his clothes. Because he said, if this dude just blasphemed because he said he's the one that Daniel 7 talked about. These guys knew the scriptures. They knew, that, in other words, how many know that Paul... Peter, all the apostles, they didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to preach from. They preached Christ from the law and the prophets. All of it was pointing to something that was delivered to us in full, where we've received of his fullness all grace for grace. Now, we're not operating in everything that was given to us, but I think the thing has to happen is that we have to realize what has already been given to us 
objectively so that we can walk in the subjective truth of what's already been delivered to us. How many can hear what I'm saying when I say that? And so uh, with that being said, I want to I want to go back into the book of Daniel. We're going to start in the book of Daniel in this session. And this one might get a little uh, this one, this one may be a little more difficult, but I think I think that if you can see the context, let me be meticulous again in teaching this and lay it out because I want to talk in this session about some of the real hard scriptures. And one of them is going to be First Thessalonians four. What about the coming of the Lord, the resurrection of the dead? First Corinthians fifteen. We're going to talk about that, and we're going to try to show you the context as well and what that means for us, and what all is in, involved in that. I think it will help us immensely. Daniel 7, let's go there in the first year of Belteshazzar, or Belshazzar. Daniel 7, king of Babylon. Daniel had a dream and visions in his head as he was lying upon his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the gist of the matter. Daniel said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens. That is the political, and I'm reading this from the Amplified Bible again, the political and social agitations. We're stirring up the great sea, that is the nations of the world. And four great beasts came up out of the sea in succession and different one from another. The first one was the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar. Remember the last session? Daniel's having the same, he's having, he's having this dream, except this time he's seeing these great beasts come up out of the sea in succession. The first one was Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. He was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And, and I looked till the wings of it were plucked and it was lifted up from the earth, and made to stand upon two feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, Medo-Persian Empire, was like a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, or one dominion, and three ribs went its mouth, and between its teeth, and it was told, Arise and devour much flesh. And after this I looked, and behold, another, the Grecian Empire, of Alexander the Great, was like a leopard, which had four wings of a bird on its back. The beast also had four heads. They were Alexander's generals, his successors, and dominion was given to them. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, the Roman Empire, terrible, powerful, and dreadful, and exceeding strong. And it had great iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled what was left with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that came before it, and it had ten horns symbolizing ten kings. This beast was, again, the fourth beast was the Roman Empire. How many of you can see the digression of the kingdoms again? He's showing you from Babylon, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. And he said, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And I kept looking until thrones were placed, for the assessors with the judge. And the Ancient of Days, God the Eternal Father, took his seat, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool, and his throne was like the fiery flame, its wheels were burning fire. And a stream of fire came forth from before him, and thousand thousands ministered to him, and ten thousand times ten thousand rose up and stood before him. The judge was seated, and the courts were in session, and the books were opened. And I looked then because of the sound of the great words which the horn was speaking, and I watched until the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given over to be burned. Now let me just stop for a moment again and tell you, he's placing this scene of judgment during the time of this Roman Empire. He's putting it right in the context 
of this time slot. I want you to see that so powerfully because even when he kept, I looked until thrones were placed, verse 9, and the assessors with the judge and the Ancient of Days, God the Father, took his seat. If you would go to Matthew 19, verse number 28, Jesus says this to the disciples. Those of you who follow me in the regeneration, will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So how many know he is talking about the scene of the judgment of the 12 tribes of Israel, and he's talking about it during the time of the Roman Empire and the fulfillment of which he promises his 12 apostles that they will sit on 12 thrones with him judging. Can, can you see that he's putting the context of this in the period of time that we're seeing here as being the Roman Empire? Shake your head if you're tracking with me. And he goes, and, 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 all, and the books were open. I looked in because of the sound of the great words, verse 11, which the horn was speaking, and I watched until the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And for the rest of the beast, their power of dominion was taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for the duration of their lives was for a fixed season, for a season and a time. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, on the clouds of heaven came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And there was given him, the Messiah, dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, and the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. That is so powerful of a declaration that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven will win. Come on, somebody. But when Jesus was standing before Caiaphas, and he says to Caiaphas, and from henceforth you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, he is quoting this verse. This verse is not about Jesus coming in the cloud to get you. This is a verse about his coming before the Ancient of Days to receive his coronation as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Come on, somebody. We got, our, we got it like, okay, and let me just tell you that they're all through the Bible. There are many, I, I wished I had 10 sessions because there's so much stuff that I'm leaving out. But there are all through the <laughs> there are there are all through the there are all kinds of different cloud comings. Many of the times that he talks about coming in clouds, he rides upon the wings of the wind. He comes in the makes darkness his secret place. He comes on the clouds, and in other words, every time that you would use that kind of a cloud coming all through the Old Testament, it was not a visible, literal return, but him coming in judgment against a nation of some type, and mostly an apostate Israel nation, as he would come in judgment to them, and sometimes he would use that as a foreign nation that would come, that would punish them and bring them back into subjection. In other words, that's why these people are in the trouble they're in, is because God told them in the book of Deuteronomy that when you forsake these things and you walk away from me, the nations are going to come, they're going to plunder you in the city, they're going to plunder you in the field, they're going to they're going to take your kids, your cows, your cash, you're going to be carried away captive in other places, the edge of the sword. In other words, go read the book of Deuteronomy, and you'll see that the end of the old covenant bargain it was completely fulfilled in the, in the book of Revelation. And the reason I don't believe that can happen again is because we're not under that covenant. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus, for that. Because what we, we don't understand sometimes is that we've been redeemed, but we've been redeemed not just from sin. We've been redeemed from the curse of the law. 
Jesus being made a curse for us. That's why we can lift up our heads because our redemption was drawing nigh is that we've been redeemed from the curse. That's why we sing the new song and the song of the Lamb in the New Testament is because he's redeemed us from that. I'm glad we're not up under a curse. Under any shape, fashion, or form, we've been redeemed from the curse of the law. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. But he's talking about the Ancient of Days coming on the clouds. He's talking about a judgment setting. He's talking about him coming in the clouds, and he's receiving the kingdom. The Messiah, was, and, was, and there was given to him, the Messiah, dominion and glory and the kingdom, that all nations' kingdoms and should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was grieved, anxious within me, and the visions of my head alarmed and agitated me. And I came near to the one who stood there and asked him the truth of all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. He said, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High God, touch your neighbor, say he's talking about you right now. But the saints of the Most High God shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. This is nothing but good news. Hallelujah. No hiccups in it. The, king, the, the saints of the Most High will possess the kingdom forever and forever. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceeding terrible and shocking, whose teeth were of iron, its nails of bronze, which devoured, broke, and crushed, and trampled what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns representing ten kings that were on its head. And the other horn which came up later, and before which three of the horns fell, the horn which had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and which looked greater than the others. And as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. You can see that same beast in the book of Revelation. I have a whole, a whole study where I, take, I compare the book of Revelation, the beast of Revelation 13, with the beast of Daniel 7. The, the wording and even the verbiage is exact. Re Revelation 13, 7, it says, I looked and this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. It was given to the beast to make war with the saints and they overcame them for time, times and a half times in the book of Revelation. For the three and a half years of the end of the scope of that prophecy that I showed you in the first session, the beast seemed to have make war with the saints and to overcome them. And he goes on to say, but, but the and the ancient and, and, and made war and prevailed over them. Revelation thirteen verse seven through nine, until the ancient of days came and the judgment was given to the saints of the Most High God, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus the angel said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and tread it down and break it in pieces. As for the ten horns out of his kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be different from the former ones, and he shall subdue and put down three kings. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change the time of the sacred feast and holy days and the law, and the saints shall be given in his into his hands for a time, two times, and a half time, or three and one half years. If you go read that in Revelation 13, 1 through 6, this same description of this same beast wears out these same saints for three and a half years. The back end of the scope of the prophecies that I showed you in this chart. The 42 months, the times, times, and a half of times, which puts it right here that this, this piece of Scripture is being fulfilled 
in the first century between about 66 to 70 A.D. 70 A.D. was when the temple was destroyed, the power of the holy people was finally broken, and their exclusive covenant with Yahweh was now completely destroyed because Judaism had to have a temple as its centerpiece. But when Jesus prophesied, not one stone will be left upon another, it happened exactly like Jesus said it would, exactly when Jesus said it would, within that generation, that this generation will not pass away until everything I told you comes to pass. Are you tracking with me? I'm trying to get you to see that the time slot is still the same. He shall speak great words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints and the Most High, think to change the times of the sacred feast and the holy days and the law. And the saints shall be given to his hands for times, two times and a half, times or three and a half years. But the judgment shall set by the court of the Most High. And they shall take away his dominion to consume it gradually and to destroy it suddenly in the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven. Let me tell you that without, after A.D. 70, within a few years, Rome would be so evangelized that it would become the centerpiece that would start to promote Christianity, and the gospel would spread all over the world. Because the sword of his mouth that fought against this empire was the sword of the gospel that you see in Hebrews chapter 4. How many of there was a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth? How many of the gospel is still conquering? It is still going. It is still gradually increasing. It is still overcoming. It is still alive and well on the planet Earth. It is still leaven. Leaven, once you get it in, you can't get it out. My Uncle Bob that you all know, he was asking me about my Uncle Bob, back my, my Aunt Linda, my Uncle Bob that went here for many years now are now going to our church because they moved to Berkeley Springs. But my Uncle Bob would come to our house every year in November because it's our deer season. I hope that doesn't offend you, but we hunt white-tailed deer. Hallelujah. Sorry, hallelujah. I love animals too. I love them fried, grilled, break. No, I'm just catching. <laughs> I shouldn't do that because I, I'm sorry. I apologize if you're an animal lover. But my Uncle Bob would come to our house, and my mom always baked bread during that time for the people that were hunting with us. And she made what we called hoe cakes. Hoe cakes are where you take the bread and you start to make homemade bread and you put the yeast in it and you knead it and you, and then she would set it in and that stuff would grow into it. It would just roll over the side of a pan. But what my mom would do is before the bread would be ready to break, she would tear off pieces of that raw dough and she would throw it in a skillet. See, my mouth's starting to water now. She would throw it in a skillet of hot grease and fry that bread. If you've never had fried bread, you don't know what you're missing. And then we would put butter and all the nooks and crannies, or jelly, or brown sugar and cinnamon, and it was absolutely delicious. But you got to know how to eat hoe cakes. You cannot eat them till you're full. As my Uncle Bob would eat those hoe cakes because they were so delicious, and then he would go lay down on the couch to take a nap, and in about 20 minutes, he's in there going, oh, God, oh, Lord, because that bread was raisin. See, what are you trying to tell us? I'm trying to tell you, some of you are getting some kingdom in you right now, and you're not going to be able to get it out. And the reason sometimes you get uncomfortable and it starts to stretch you is because you ate it till you were comfortable but it's starting to grow. See, the wonderful good news is he declares that of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. But he also puts some of this into the jurisdiction of the kingdom and the dominion 
and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven will give, be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. The reason I believe that seminars like this are so vitally important is because we are participators in the increase of His kingdom. That's not just to get people from here to there, but to get heaven to operate here. See, in Him was life, and the life was the light. See, let me just say this to you. Sometimes we read into Scripture stuff that is not in them. For instance, here's one of them. Straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life, not heaven. Because we think, I need to get on the straight and narrow so I can make heaven my home. That's not what he's trying to say there. Oh, help me, Holy Ghost. I'm going to go on this side. Straight is the gate, narrow is the way that leads to life. And few there be that find it. Broad is the way, wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. There's a lot of people who are going in through destruction. In other words, you've got to have a whole lot of trouble that keeps on bringing you back and bringing you back. But the way that leads to life is the straight and narrow. But if you read the context of that in the next chapter, Jesus says this in John 10. He says, all that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some, say this with me, some other way. Say it again. Some other way. The same is a thief and a robber. Some other way. And then he says, all that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. And then you get down in verse 9, he says, but I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. For the thief cometh not but for to kill, to steal, and to destroy. But I am come that you might have, not a ticket to heaven, life, and that you might have it more abundantly. That's not in the sweet by and by, that's the nasty now and now. So, now don't get mad with me here, but the thief of John 10 is not the devil. The devil's never mentioned in John 10. I know we've said it so much that we think it is. The, de the devil's never mentioned in John 10. The thief of John 10 is not the devil. The devil might be involved, but the thief of John 10 is some other way. What was the some other way? Is that you think you can make it in through achieving through old covenant paradigms. And it didn't take your, it didn't give you your life. It took your life. Somebody help me over here now that. Come on, how many know religion can be a thief? Let, let me say this to you. I, I think I might have even said this on a Sunday morning when I was here back a few months ago to preach. But, you know, my mom, we grew up in, in real legalistic Pentecost. And I appreciate the fact that our roots were there. And we did what we did because we thought that's what God wanted from us. But here's the general rule when I was growing up. If it's fun, it's got to be a sin. It was a sin to play sports. It was a sin to play baseball. It was a sin to go to a movie. It was a sin to go, you know, your high school prom. It was a sin, you know. I mean, just general rule is it's a sin to watch TV. We shot the TV set. It was a sin to drink Coca-Cola. It was a sin to eat devil's food cake. Devil, you know, it's just stuff wasn't even in the Bible. I mean, forget the law of Moses. It was the stuff we made up on top of that. But my mom said one day, she was at the grocery store, and she came back and she said, you know, she said, I saw today a saint of God. And then she'd get that little jerk on her, you know, that little pick. Ooh, hallelujah. Mm. I knew she was, ooh, Shunda. She starts Shunda a little bit, you know. I knew she was a saint. 
Oh, hallelujah, because of the glow on her face. And I'm just a young kid, and I'm thinking, Mom, that's not a glow. That's a shine from no makeup. You didn't know her because of the glow on her face. You knew her because she had a beehive or a top knot for a hairdo. A dress between her knees and ankles. Black hair under pantyhose because it, it was a sin to shave your legs back then. Thank God we got delivered. Y'all don't. Woman looked like granny from the, I'm not trying to put anybody down who believes God told them to do that. That's up to you if that's what you feel led to do. But what I'm simply saying is my mom said I knew she was a saint by the glow on her face. I'm thinking, Mom, you didn't know her because of the glow on her face. You knew her because she looked like you and our dress code we had. And this is what my mom said. What a testimony this woman's life was to the world. Except the world's looking at this and saying, you mean your God makes you look like that? So if your God makes you live like that, then I don't really not interested in your God until I'm 85 and got three more breasts left. Now, come on with me. See, if heaven is like where we went to church at, do we really want to go there? Well, just a thought. If you don't like my thoughts, have some of your own. What I'm simply saying is sometimes religion has so robbed us of our lives that half of our anxiety and stress and half of why the world is on mood-enhancing drugs in Christianity, too. And I'm not trying to get you off of your medicine. Don't misunderstand me. I've seen you off of it. And some folks, now, I'm not trying to put that down. That doesn't make you weak. What I'm simply saying is that, though, I think a lot of it, we were talking, him and I were talking about a pastor that I know personally. That's all, I mean, he's almost had several nervous breakdowns. But a lot of it is the theology, the theology of fear and a God who is moments away from either killing you or you being left behind or you're not performing well enough or you've got to achieve this or achieve that is literally draining the life out of them because it is a thief. It is. Not, it, all, it is all that ever came before him. But once you get him, you get the life because the straight and narrow is not performance. It's a person, and it's in that book back there called The Great I Am because it's one of the, the, the words Jesus says, I am. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. So what I believe that will happen is that the real gospel will give you back your life, and the life becomes the light, and people in the world will say, I want a life like that one. I'm convinced that a lot of our anxiety, I'm getting some answers to some stuff we talked about a while ago. I'm, I'm convinced a lot of our anxiety and stress have come from Christianity. We, we walk down to church aisle and trade one set of stress and problems for another one. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus began to declare in Matthew 11, are you tired? Are you weary? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me, walk with me, work with me, see how I do it, and you will learn the unforced rhythm of grace. But the key is, it's not just I've thrilled a many a crowd by saying, are you tired? Are you weary? Are you burned out on religion? And Peter, have them shout the house down, and I'm on board with that. But that's not the end of that verse. He said, walk with me. Work with me. See how I do it. And then he says in that verse, you will recover your life. You'll get your life back. You'll get your peace back, your joy back. Come on, somebody. You'll get your looks back, your peace back, your romance back, your wife back, your kids will come back, your money will come back. Oh, y'all don't want to help me preach here. You'll recover your life, he says in Romans, the fifth chapter. Here it is in the Message Bible. He says, here it is in a nutshell. One man did it wrong, got us in all this trouble, sin and death. And another man did it right and got us out of it. 
Not throw them in a crowd by preaching you're not in trouble anymore and you're not in trouble anymore. That is good news. But the next part of that says, but more than just get us out of trouble, he got us into a life. A life that goes on and on and on. I got to tell you, man, I'm enjoying my journey. I've got more peace when people are talking about the skies falling and how bad it is. And, well, the end is near. And I watch people all shook up and tore up over what they watched on the news. I literally put myself on a fast watching the news. And I don't care which one you watch. It all has an agenda. And it's all fear-based. It's because fear sells. Good news doesn't sell. That's why my books don't sell like the, the fear ones do. Because if you come up with the latest conspiracy theory and try to scare people into stuff, you can keep it. But the problem is, if you have to scare people to get them saved, you got to keep them scared to keep them saved. And the reason people don't want to preach this is because you take the fear out of it and you find out what's really in people's hearts that they're not doing it because they're looking for a ticket to heaven and a ship out of here. They're doing it because they realize that the real gospel will give them back a real life and they'll have real peace and real joy and a real marriage and real family and real values and something will start to really work in our real world. What we need is not a figment of our imagination. We need some real manifestation of the kingdom of God, which is righteousness and peace and joy that can only be supplied by the Holy Spirit. So the straight and narrow that leads to life is not performance, it's Jesus. And that was what they were missing in the first century. But the saints of the Most High, I could develop that for an hour and tell you that's a specific name of God, El Elyon, that always has to do, every time you see the name of God, El Elyon, it always has to do with Melchizedek. It has to do with the Most Holy Place. It has to do with uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. It always has something to do with a mercy seat or the New Covenant. People with an understanding of the Most High God are going to possess the kingdom and live in the kingdom and realize it is government of the Holy Spirit living inside of me, and he offered that to us in the first century. Can you see that the timing of this and the timing of this judgment and the timing of this throne being set is in the first century, A.D. 70, in fulfillment of what Jesus told his disciples, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. How many of that began with the judgment of the Roman? I mean, that's about as clear of a context as I can give to you. Are you tracking with me? Now, let's go into Daniel chapter 12. I'm enjoying this if you're not. Hallelujah. <clears throat> I, I, I know you are. And at that time, Daniel 12, at that time, the time of the end. End of what? Not the end of this age, end of that age. And at that time of the end, Michael shall arise, the great angelic prince who defends and has charge over your Daniel's people, there shall be a time of trouble and, and, uh, a, a, and straightness and distress such as never was since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered and everyone whose name will be found written in the book of God's plan for his own. Now, let me t stop for a moment and put context again here. Here's Daniel again standing up. And he says, in that season, Michael, the great prince, will stand up. Michael is the archangel. Michael is the one who sounds the trumpet in 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the chief messenger, which is Michael. 
Revelation chapter 11 says, I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven with a rainbow around his throat, a ra- rainbow around his head. It was the archangel Michael, and he announces with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea that no more time would intervene, that there should be any more waiting or delay. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God will be finished. The seventh trumpet is the last trumpet. That puts the last trumpet squarely, and when the seventh trumpet begins to sound in the book of Revelation, is in the 11th chapter of the book of Revelation, when the martyrs under the altar are crying, How long, Lord, till you avenge us? Luke chapter 21, Jesus said, These are the days of vengeance that all things which were spoken might be fulfilled. And he talked about that fulfillment being within that generation. But Michael the prince is the one who stands up and declares the seventh trumpet beginning to sound. And at the moment he starts talking about the seventh trumpet, the Romans are given to trample under the city, Revelation chapter 11. For 42 months, the Gentiles are given access to trample the holy city underfoot for 42 months, times, times, and a half a time. Three and a half years, 42 months, same period of time Daniel was talking about, Same period of time that's in the end of this chart I showed you, Habakkuk's appointed time of the end, when this beast would wear out the saints of the Most High, and then all of a sudden they would take away the kingdom and the saints of the Most High would possess the kingdom and possess it forever and forever. But he goes on to say, it would be a time of trouble. These are the words that Jesus uses in even in his prophecy. He said there will be tribulation such as was not, since the world began, or will ever be again. He says that also in Matthew 24. Jesus is talking from these scriptures as well. Are you tracking with me? Then he goes on to say, and uh, it'll be a time of straightness and distress such as never was since, the, since, since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book of God's plan for his own. Now, here's here's the verse I want you to see. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt and abhorrence. What this does is it puts the resurrection squarely within the first century. Now, I'm going to show you some powerful stuff here that I think is going to help us really understand some scripture. I'm just trying to establish strongly the time period is tracking with everything I told you so far. Am I doing a good job of showing you the... I I feel like sometimes when you start dealing with details, people start quitting on you or losing you. But he starts to put this resurrection. This stuff was stuff I tried not to see, to be honest with you. Because I knew if I start teaching the fullness of this, it's going to cost me a lot of friends. But I've decided I love truth more than I love friends. But it put the resurrection squarely within the first century. Now, I want to show you some powerful stuff here. But he said, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt and abhorrence. And the teachers and those who are wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to stars, turn many to righteousness, to uprightness and right standing with God shall give forth light as the stars forever. 
And I could put it in there. I could show you something out of Matthew 13, but I, I will, I'll just leave that out. Let, let me read Matthew 13 because it's really, Matthew 13 is a parable where he's talking about that, the parable of the sower. And he says, this is verse 39, Matthew 13. And the enemy that sowed is the devil. The harvest is the close and consummation of the age. And the reapers are the angels. This puts this harvest seed, what we do with Matthew 13, the harvest is the end of the age. We put that out in the future. But he's not talking about the end of this age. He was talking about the end of that age. And he tells you clearly that the sower was the son of man. He sowed good seed in the field while men slept and enemy came and sowed tares. But in the verse 39, he said, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close or the consummation of the age. It's the close of the old covenant age. The reapers are the angels. Just as the darnel weeds resembling wheat is gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of this age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of offense, persons by whom others are drawn into error or sin, and all who do iniquity and act wickedly, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and wailing and, and, and grinding of teeth. Then will the righteous, those who are upright and right standing with God, shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Let him who has ears to hear be listening, and let him consider and perceive and understand and hear. That's a direct quote from Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and, and search anxiously through the book of knowledge and God's purpose as revealed by his prophets and shall increase and become great. But he talks about that they will be like as the stars from the heavens. In other words, he's connecting these scriptures. Are, are you following me? Let me go back to Daniel. Then I, Daniel, this is verse 5, looked and behold, there stood two others, the one on the brink of the river on this side and the other on the brink of the river on that side. And one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he'd held up his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever, it shall be for time, times, half a time, or three and one half years, and when they have made an end of shattering and crushing the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. That's quoted again in Revelation chapter 11. When I saw a mighty angel, Michael the prince stands up and holds up his hand and said, there will be no more intervention of time. And then for the next time, times, half a times, 42 months, all of that starts to proceed that he's prophesying here. And he's prophesying there that they would be for a time, times and a half times, that there would be a time of shattering and crushing the power of the holy people. In other words, the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of that covenant would happen during the period of that time. I'm just trying to show you the comparison by comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. In other words, we are interpreting the book of Revelation by not using USA Today. We are using the Bible Surprise, surprise. The Bible will interpret itself. See, I would, I would read through these scriptures and think, wait a minute, I think I've read that somewhere else. And if that's not good enough, they put the references in here. I just could never connect the dots because my paradigm was always, well, he's talking, he's not talking about this. He's talking about what's happening in 2022. But see, that's where we get real subjective. It pulls it out of the context and the setting and the covenant and the people to which it was written. And he's writing it to Old Covenant. This is talking about the history of the Jews and those 
who are coming to the end of this covenant and him crushing the power of the holy people. And he goes on to say in verse 8, And I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O Lord, what shall be the issue and the final end of these things? And he, the angel, said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed till the time of the end. Tells Daniel to seal up the words and the prophecy till the time of the end because it was for a distant future. He'll say that in just a few moments. You read the book of Revelation, he tells Daniel, seal up this vision because it's, a, it's for the end. When you get to the book of Revelation, he tells John the Revelator, do not seal up the words of this prophecy because the time is at hand. It's no longer in the distant future. In Daniel's day, it was several hundred years in the future, about 500 but for, uh, for them in the book of Revelation, it was not in the distant future. That's what God called the distant future. So if we say, well, you know, God's timing is a whole lot different than ours. Well, the truth of it is, is that God tells you what his time works like when he tells you, here, Daniel, shut it up because it's for the distant future. Well, the distant future just so happened to be about 500 years there. So you can't put 2,000-year gap in here somewhere and talk about, well, you know, God just sees time because he's outside of time. No, he works. These things happen exactly like he said they would within the time slot of what he said they would. And to me, that's what is so convincing even about the Word of God and the reality of this God who is so precise that it's without any kind of stretching it, breaking any kind of hermeneutical rules. It is context, and it is happening just... We have to suppose that he's putting this stuff squarely within the first century. How many of you can see that that's a good possibility? Am I covering that good enough? To, I'm going to see your hands. Just commit to me. Hallelujah. And then he goes on to say, he said, that, he said, shut up and seal till the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves, make themselves white, and try it, smelt it, and refine it. But the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. And the teachers and those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the continual burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. If you pull out your chart that I gave you before, right over here at the end, the daily sacrifice was abolished in A.D. 66. In the Roman Jew Jewish War, there were four sieges of Jerusalem. And that final times, times and a half times from 66 AD until the time when he said from the time that the daily sacrifice was abolished would be 1,290 days, three and a half years, time, times and a half times, or 42 months. He's putting it squarely right there at the end of the eschaton or the end of the old covenant age not at the end of this age. And he's putting all of that in that context. And he's saying to them, blessed, happy, fortunate, spiritually prosperous, and to be envied is those who waits expectantly and earnestly, who endures without wavering beyond the period of tribulation. Because this was the great tribulation, such as was not. Who, who endures and wait without wavering beyond the period of tribulation and comes to the 1,334 days or 1,335 days, but you, Daniel, who, who was now over 90 years of age, go your way until the end, for you will rest, and you shall stand fast in your allotted place in the end of days. Then I was given a reed like a, a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, this is Revelation 11. I, I, I jumped ahead in my notes. Let's go, let's go, ahead, and, let's go ahead and jump over to Revelation. Revelation 11. 
Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. That's exactly what the Romans did. These beasts that he describes, in the progression that he describes them, Babylon, the Medes, the Greeks, and now the Romans. In Revelation 11, it is the Romans in the last three and a half years of the scope of this prophecy who are now treading the holy city underfoot. The temple is about to be destroyed, and they're going to do it for 42 months. You tracking with me? And he said, but leave out the court that's given to the Gentiles, and I will give power to my two witnesses. They shall prophesy 1,260 days. Clothed in sackcloth. This is the indictment of the law and the prophets against the power of the holy people that's about to be broken for the same amount of time that Daniel prophesied about. 1,290 days. But you're blessed if you go beyond that because once that's destroyed, then they've come beyond the tribulation. And he said, blessed are those who come to the 1,335. In other words, you've, you've endured until all of this has been broken. And the temple has been destroyed, and God has raised up a new temple. We'll get to that probably. Tomorrow it's going to blow the minds of folk who ain't been here. Because we're going to talk about a new heaven and a new earth. They ain't going to have a clue what I'm talking about. They will have some. I'll try to do it where it'll stand alone. But this is really a build-up. What I'm simply saying is, see, what we need to understand is that an old covenant was passing. A new covenant is coming on the scene. I'll get into this some tomorrow, but the, an old heaven and an old earth was passing away because if you walked up to any Jewish person and say, tell me something, what, when I say heaven and earth, what does that mean? They would say their temple. It was the place where heaven and earth met. It was their, it was their Bethel. But Jesus began to shift the paradigm in John when he walked up and said to uh, Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. And he said, uh, he marveled. He said, don't marvel that you, said, I, you heard me say, I saw you under the fig tree. Because from henceforth, you will see the angels of God ascend and descend on the Son of Man. The only other place you see angels of God ascend and descend on the Son of Man, or uh, angels of God ascend and descend, was when Jacob wrestled with the angel, and he called it Bethel. He saw the angels. He saw a ladder let down, and the angels of God ascend and descend. He said, this is none other than the house of God, and this is Bethel. Jesus walks on the scene and said, don't marvel because I saw you under the fig tree. You're going to marvel because you're going to see the angels of God ascend and descend because God's moving into a new temple, and you're standing in front of you. And then Jesus walks right into their temple and said, destroy this one, and in three days I'm going to raise up another one. I'm about to run the aisles up in here. Because an old temple passed, and I saw a new temple. Come on. An old heaven and an old earth passed, because that was the place where heaven and earth met. It was in their Bethel, but now God's temple is bigger, and a new heaven and a new earth came on the scene. And old Jerusalem was passing off of the scene, and new Jerusalem was coming on the scene. New Jerusalem is not a place. It is a people. It is the bride the Lamb's wife. Hello, bride, Lamb's wife. Hello, temple of God. Hello, new heaven and new earth. See, that's not talking about the collapse of a planet and God making a whole brand new one. It's talking about God's new creation that begins inside of us because God's temple has now become not just God in a box somewhere, but he wants to fill the whole earth. See, God's temple was his, the whole creation in the beginning. Because if you ever study temple theology, every time you would create a temple, you always put the image of your God in that temple. 
In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it is God making the whole earth His temple. And the last day of His creation, He puts a man in His image with dominion. High as a bird can fly and as deep as a fish can swim. God puts His image in the earth to be His representative in the earth at the end of that creation. That's His temple. But when man sins, come on, they lose that and all for hundreds of years, God is in all kinds of temples. He's in an old flapping tent. He's in David's tabernacles. He's in Solomon's temple. He's in inheritance. But Jesus comes on the scene and says, but See, I don't want to live in an old flapping tent and I don't want to live in a box. I want to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I want to put my image back in it. And amazingly enough, when Jesus walks into the temple to be judged in the final days of, and he walks in and the Bible takes great pain to point out that he shows up on the sixth day. Just like Adam showed up on day six. And when they walk into the temple, the high priest declares, Behold the man. God put his image back in his temple. Somebody help me a little bit. He put his image back in the temple the next day. He's in the tomb because God has to rest on the Sabbath. Because the work was finished. But on day number eight... It was a new creation beginning. And when he got up from the dead, it was the signal that God's new creation project is fully underway. And he was the first begotten from among the dead. And the resurrection was now underway. Let me see if I finish. Now, let let, let me go here and put this again because I want to set the stage of this resurrection. He gives them a read. They're un- the, the temple seats for 42 months by the Romans. Verse 4, these, this is Revelation 11, verse 4. These are the two olive trees, the two lambs stands, but stand before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have the power to shut the heavens so that the rain falls. no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. They have power over water to turn the blood strike the earth as often as they will with plagues. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Those, then those from the people, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days, not allow their dead bodies to be put into the graves, and those who dwell on the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who saw them. And then, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth part of the city fell, and the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were frightened and gave glory to the God of heaven. In fulfillment of Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24, there will be earthquakes in diverse places. All of these prophecies are coming to pass. But verse 15 says, this is the one I want you, and the seventh angel sounded. Now let's suppose here that the only place I know there's trumpets is in the book of Revelation and also in the Old Testament, but there were seven priests who blew seven trumpets right before the old city of Jericho fell and they took their possession. In the New Testament, book of Revelation Seven angels sound, and an old city falls, and a new one comes, and a promised land is there. Powerful comparisons. That's the only place there are seven trumpets. But the seventh trumpet is the last trumpet. Everybody say last trumpet. So the last trumpet 
The seventh trumpet sounded, and there were voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat on sat before God on their thrones, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. And the nations were angry, and your wrath has come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, should be destroyed, those who destroy the earth. How many know in Daniel, he said, during the days of those Roman kings, many that slept in the dust of the earth would arise, some to everlasting contempt and some to everlasting pleasures or righteousness. He's putting this in the same time slot. And he said, the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen as his temple and there were lightnings and noises and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Now, let me take you back then with that thought into 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. These are powerful scriptures. I want you to see again that the timing of this, I think I've built over the last two services, squarely put the Romans in power during the time when Jesus came to the Ancient of Days and received the kingdom and the books were open and the throne was set and a judgment was about to take place. How many know it was a judgment that began in the first century? Are you tracking with me? And many that slept in the dust would arise. Now let's go here to 1 Thessalonians and see what it says. But I would not have you ignorant. Now let me say this again to you. Audience relevance is everything. He is talking to a first century church at Thessalonica. And if you read everything coming up to this, they are suffering the spoiling of their goods. Their loved ones are dying in the arenas. They are being martyred. They are being persecuted. The chapter following this, he writes to them a letter and said, Do not be troubled as if you have received a letter as if it were from us that the day of Christ was at hand. For that day will not come. There comes a fall away first, and the man of sin be revealed, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. So he's telling that first century church at Thessalonica, I'm warning you about this, not living faith 2,022 years from now, this will be something relevant to you. As a matter of fact, I don't have time to develop this, but the man of sin that sat in the temple of God was a man by the name of John Levi of Gershom who usurped the office of the priest because the priest was what was withholding until he was taken out of the way. But once the high priest was taken out of the way and there was an illegal priesthood there, an abomination that made desolate, when the man of sin sat in the temple of God showing himself that he was God, it was near even at the door. And that happened with a man by the name of John Levi of Gershon, who literally set himself up in the high priest's place and declared himself that he was God. It was also in fulfillment of when they shall say peace and safety, sudden destruction would come upon them like a woman in travail because the travail of that season was God was getting ready to birth something brand spanking new. And so what happens is what we do if we pull that text out of its context and we start talking about a man of sin sitting in the temple of God. Let me just say this to you. Let me, let me calm down. Because I'm talking 100 miles an hour. The whole red heifer thing is hung on whether or not there's a restored temple. When somebody said to me the other day, you know, the, the coming of Jesus has got to be within the next couple months. To which I reply, if I, uh, first of all, if it, to, to, in order to believe that, there has to come, before that can happen, the man of sin has to set in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And there is no temple in the Middle East. So at least it is not that imminent. Because even if I'm wrong, 
they have to rebuild a temple. Now, I know they're saying they're going to build it in the next couple of months. Some of them are saying we're going to offer red heifers. I think if God wasn't interested in that building to start out with and he allowed the Romans to destroy it, why would you want to rebuild it and then offer the blood of a bull or a goat? It would do despite to the spirit of grace. It would insult the new covenant. It would be walking over the blood of Jesus and saying that the blood of the covenant is an unholy thing. If you get deceived by somebody wanting you to offer an animal sacrifice, you need to run for your life. There is only one name given under heaven whereby men must be saved that at the name of Jesus. That's not talking about this man of sin sitting in the temple of God showing himself that he is God is not something in the future. It happened and it was relevant to these people in the first century because Paul was saying he wrote this to them in the 50s, several years before the great falling away when people were being persecuted. And so he's writing to them everything before Thessalonians 4 and everything following that has some relevance to the church at Thessalonica. We need to remember when we're reading these, he's not telling us what's going to happen in 2022. He's telling these churches stuff that's going to be relevant to them. He didn't write to seven churches in Asia thinking, hey, let me just write a church. Let me write them some letters. It will mean nothing to them, but somewhere in 2022, they're going to find this letter and they're going to figure it out and they're going to think that Apollyon is the Apollo space program and Scud missiles and we're going to preach everything from Godzilla monsters and bugs as big as Volkswagens. Instead of comparing the Scripture with the Scriptures and pulling them out of context, we're going to build a whole theology of fear on people because if you can keep them afraid, you can manipulate them. We keep people in church because we're afraid we're going to be left behind. Now, let me tell you, I think you ought to be in church, but not because you're afraid. I think we're in such a reformation, we're going to start to come to church because it gives us back our life. It becomes a place of community where this thing is lived out and fleshed out of where, come on, the gifts of the Spirit can move and people can get healed. Marriages can be delivered and set free where we can get our joy back, our peace back, get delivered from the bondages of all the stuff where we become relevant because, well, I'm coming not because I'm afraid. I'm not coming to church because I'm afraid I'm going to hell or I need a ticket to heaven. I'm coming because I believe this is where the life is at. It's out of the body of Christ and members in particular as every joint begins to supply and we start to function like the city of God that we are. Somebody said, I don't need church. Well, that a city is not one person. And we're a city set on a hill that can't be hid. We're the new Jerusalem. We're the bride, the lamb's wife. We ought to be saying, let him that's thirsty come. Let me tell you something. I'm all over the place here, but I'm getting way ahead of myself. But it ends, the book of Revelation ends by saying that, that he said, and God will wipe all tears off of all faces. And then he says to them, let him come and drink of the water of life without cost. Let him come and drink it freely. Because what happens is that's not something you get when you die. It's something you get when you start drinking the right water. I'm about to run the aisles up in here. Hallelujah, because I got a drinking problem this morning. I'm drinking from the well that never runs dry. 
Because Jesus told the woman at the well, your people say we need to worship here and we need to say we need to worship there. But let me tell you, the hour's coming. And now is when real worship was when worship me in spirit and in truth. Because if you're thirsty woman at the well, you've been drawn from Jacob's well. You've been drawn from every other source trying to satisfy the thirst of your soul. But there's only one thing that can satisfy the thirst of the human soul. And that's the water that flows, come on, out of the, out of the smitten rock, which is Christ. It flows from a lamb in the middle of a throne. It flows from the kingdom of God and everybody that drinks this water, wherever this river flows, it will live. The mission of new creation is out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. Hey, hallelujah. Hallelujah. We ate our way into this problem. We drank our way into this problem. We could eat and drink our way out of it. That's why the kingdom is full of eating and drinking. Yeah, it did. It started with an eating disorder in Eden's Misty Garden when God said, don't eat that. They ate it, got in trouble. Hundreds of years later, they're in Egypt. God said, I'm going to deliver them. Moses said, give me the strategy. He said, tell them, let's eat. Let's eat more lamb. Let's drink water from the smitten rock. Let's eat the bread that falls from heaven, the manna. Let's feed and eat and drink. I don't know about you, but... Come on, I think when you truly taste of the water of life, what happens is Jesus said you will never thirst again. That doesn't mean you don't thirst for the things of God. That means you're going to lose your appetite for what flowed out of Jacob's empty well of empty self-help and achievement because what happens is when it's all based on me and what I've done rather than on what he's done and I don't draw from that resource, I've got weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth and there are tears. But God said I'm going to wipe all tears off of all faces and that's not some glad morning. That's beginning to happen in my life right now. And that's an ongoing project, and that's the project of new creation is out of your belly, temple of God. And I saw a river, a pure river, clear as a crystal. It was flowing from the throne and from a slain lamb. It's flowing from the finished work. I think we're just starting to preach the gospel. I really think we're just starting to really preach the gospel. Good stuff. Okay, let's talk some more about resurrection. First Thessalonians 4, let's go for the juggler. But I would not have you ignorant, brethren. Now he's talking to a first century church who were losing loved ones, who were dying. They're dying in arenas, they're martyrs. And up until Jesus comes on the scene, no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven. The way into the most holy place was not yet made while the first temple still stood. That's why the temple has got to be destroyed. Is because the covenant of death is still in effect. Because that's why it's called the that's why it's called the law of sin and death, because the end of the, the law is not life. The end of the law is death. That's why Jesus had to come and die. And he didn't die so you could live. He came to die to give you a death. He got up from the dead to give you a resurrection. So he's saying to them in this first century, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep that you saw or not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe Jesus died, rose again, even so them that sleep in Jesus, God will bring with him. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, or literally by the Lord's own words, that we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Now, how many know Jesus told them, there are some of you standing here that won't taste death till you see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. 
So he's quoting Jesus saying, we're saying this to you by the word, the Lord's own words. He also said in Matthew 24, all of this will happen in the, before this generation passes away. And so he's putting context here again, saying, if we believe that Jesus died, rose again, even so that the sleep of Jesus, God will bring with him. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain. Notice the personal pronouns. We, us, we, Thessalonians, who are alive and remain. I gave you all those time texts in the first session showing you Jesus said he would return before that generation would pass away. Y'all getting quiet on me now. And he's reminding them, these are the Lord's own words. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose in them which also sleep in Jesus, God will bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain, we who are alive and remain, under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the chief angel. Remember how I tied the archangel Michael to Daniel 12? Tied it to Revelation 11. Michael is the one sounding which trumpet? Last trumpet. Here we have the archangel shouting the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, I'm going to deal with also 1 Corinthians 15 in a moment with this. But, but let, me, let, me just, let me grab this for you. When I started to look at the Scripture, I started to see that this Scripture is not talking about a rapture because the word rapture is not mentioned here. It's talking about a resurrection. I think that I have made a pretty strong argument that according to Daniel, according to Revelation 11, it strongly suggests that some kind of a resurrection was going to take place within the scope of that time period, including the fact that it's the archangel that's making these announcements. And what I began to see was, what we don't... In, let me just talk to you a little bit. You ever been to a funeral? And you go, and you go to the funeral, and they're like, Mom went home to be with the Lord. And I'm like, I'm good with that. That helps me. See, Paul's giving this to comfort one another. Mom went home to be with the Lord. And so I'm thinking, okay, thank God mom's not suffering anymore. And then a few minutes later, he said, but you know, in that great getting up moment, mom is going to go be with the Lord. And I'm like, well, you told me a couple of minutes ago, mom went with the Lord a while ago. And then we get out to the grave and it's ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And I'm like... What have you done with my mother? Where is my mom? And then we quote old covenant scriptures and new covenant scriptures, and we get confused. The dead know nothing, and they slept with their fathers. Because here's what we forget to look at. Under the old covenant, when you died, you slept with your fathers. They slept. They were waiting on a resurrection because the resurrection of Christ had not yet taken place. But watch this. In Matthew 27, I think you've got that scripture. I think I may have given it to you. Was it Matthew 27? When Jesus, let me see if I got it here somewhere. Did I give you the scripture in Matthew 27? Yep. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Next verse. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. 
What? What? And the graves were open. You can't say it any clearer than this. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose. Daniel 12 fulfilled. This will be Christ, the first fruits. This is the fulfillment of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I don't know whether to read all this in 1 Corinthians 15 or not. Let me, let me come back here. Let, let me just say it, and then we'll come back and look at the Scriptures. He says, we are in jeopardy, He said, because, but we believe in the resurrection. If Christ is not raised and the dead are not raised, then our faith is in vain. But he goes on to say here in 1 Corinthians that he says, I want you to see that there is an order, but every man will come forth in his own order, literally his own rank. And then he says, Christ and the first fruits. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming, Greek word parousia, his coming that we're talking about in the clouds of AD 70. But see, Matthew 27 is 30 years, or, or about probably 40 years prior to A.D. 70. So what this first resurrection is, now I don't know about you, but if I was a believer, if I'm no, not a believer, if I was an unbeliever, and the veil of the temple is written from top to bottom, and dead folks start showing up on the streets of Jerusalem, I'm a believer now. <laughs> I mean, people came out of the graves in fulfillment of the prophecy that Christ and then the first fruits, because the first fruit, and then Paul uses the harvest paradigm all the way through this, sown in weakness, raised in power. But the feast of first fruits was when the first blade would start up out of the ground and they would take a sheath of corn and they would walk up and down the streets and wave it as a wave of first fruit offering, saying, the simple fact that I'm waving this first fruit is an indicator that there's a harvest coming. So when Christ got up and the first fruits, that was the beginning of the resurrection was now started and underway. Now for the next 30 years, the first fruits are all, the next 40 years, the first fruits are all that is raised because I've been challenged by people saying, but Paul corrected Hymenius and Philetes, who came to him and said, you are in error because you say the resurrection is already past. And I've had them bring that up. I promise you I've been challenged by a lot of stuff. And I, to which I reply, if you're going to quote that, you've got to date it. Because that was prior to the 70 A.D. parousia, where the last trumpet or the coming of the Lord would come in 70 A.D. when the trumpet sounded that you see in Revelation chapter 11, that's when the dead were raised and people came out of the graves and they were seen, I mean, first of all, they're seen in the city, but now there's a general resurrection. So in between that time, the resurrection, the general resurrection had not occurred. It was only Christ and the wave of sheath, the first fruit. Those who had slept in the graves came out of the graves, and now they are waiting on this resurrection to occur because we are in the final days of the last days of the scope of these prophecies. Are you tracking with me?
And we are waiting on the last trumpet. The last trumpet sounds in Revelation chapter number 11 when the temple, right after the temple is destroyed and the Romans siege the city for 42 months and there's a resurrection. And all of a sudden people start coming out of the graves and, and God, there was a resurrection. Now let me, let me just say this to you. This is to me, this is very personal to me. Because what, what, what Paul is saying here is, after this resurrection occurs, after the dead are raised, we're not going to sleep. Here's the thing he's trying to, I want to show you a mystery. We're not all going to sleep. Because under the old covenant, they slept with the fathers. But for believers from this time on, the moment you take your last breath, you don't sleep. The corruptible puts on the incorruption. The mortal puts on immortality. Come on, somebody. What was sown is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. The moment you take your... Barry Lubby is not waiting on some great getting up moment. He's in the amphitheater tonight cheering us on to the finish line. And let me just tell you something. And I know many of this is going to, this, this will resonate with many of you. I'm almost hesitant to talk about this. But if you've ever been with any... If you've been in ministry any length of time, and you've ever been with anybody that's dying, or you've ever been with a loved one that's dying, I get tore up thinking about this. My mother passed away in August of 2020. And when she, the last couple of days she was alive, she started talking to people on the other side. If you've ever been with people who are dying, they start seeing the other side. And when they start, let me just tell you something. When your loved ones start to talk to people on the other side, they're going to decide if they're going to stay or if they're going to go. My mother said, your daddy's here, and he wants me to go with him, and Grandma Barker's with him. He wants me to go with him and climb up on a rock. I said, she didn't get confused. She knew exactly who she was talking about. I said, Mom, do you want to go with him? She said, I'm thinking about it. I said, well, it's your decision. If you're in a lot of pain and you want to go, and Dad wants you to go with him and climb up on a rock, I know who the rock is. She said, well, I want to wait a day or so because Amber is having her baby, and I want to see her baby before I go. I get tore up, man. I'm sorry if I get too tore up here. She said, I want to see Amber's baby. And she said, your daddy's here. He wants to see her too. Wants to see him too. And when Amber had her baby, they FaceTimed my mom because COVID was rampant. And they FaceTimed my mom, and they held the baby up, and mom was looking at the baby, and she was talking to Amber. And she says, now hold it up there to the side because your daddy is standing behind me, and he wants to see the baby. Now, I can't see him, but mom can see him. One of the little girls that's two years old who've never seen my daddy come running out of my mom's bedroom, and she said, Mommy, Mommy, you've got to come back here. Pappy? She said, there's a man back there. And she started describing this man talking to my mom. And she described my dad from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. They are not asleep. In the resurrection, they are as the angels of God. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth into the earth to minister for those who shall be the heirs of salvation? Now, I am not suggesting that we go try to conjure up or call up the dead. But the Bible is full of visitations because Moses and Elijah appeared to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
The angel that showed John the revelation said, Do not worship me. I am one of your fellow brethren that keep the testimony of this book. And you can call me mad if you want to. But my daddy, before he passed away, when I would walk on his platform, he would hand me a microphone and he would say, Preach good boy. And if he was in the congregation right now, he'd be shouting while I'm preaching because he'd shout me down, help me preach a little bit. And he would always say to me, preach good, son, or preach good, boy. I was in Malaysia a few years after my dad had passed. And it was probably one of the highest impact meetings I've ever had outside this country. I was in Malaysia. It was an, uh, a conference that was uh, in an all-inclusive resort. It was 220 rooms, fully double booked. I'm the only speaker. There are leaders here from Asia, China, Indonesia, Singapore, uh, 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 you know, Philippines, all over Asia. I'm the only speaker in this conference. And when I started to take the platform, you could, you could call me crazy. I don't really care what you think. When I got ready to take the platform, I heard my dad audibly say to me, not in my mind, I heard my dad audibly say to me, preach good boy. He was cheering me on. Now, I don't know if that gives you any peace or not. And somebody, So I came back home. Let me just tell you, I came back home concerned because I'd had that experience. And I went to several pastor friends of mine because I knew Paul said that we don't need to intrude into those things and talk to the dead. So that was on my mind. So I went to several pastors. I said, listen, man, y'all, maybe I'm losing my mind, but I heard my daddy talk to me. And this pastor looked at me and he said, I said, and Paul said we shouldn't talk to the dead. And this pastor looked at me and he said, that would be true if they were dead. That's what he's trying to say to these people in Thessalonica that's going to give them peace is, I don't want you to be ignorant because... So you don't sorrow as others because we're not all going to sleep. We're going to be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. And what happened for all of us in that last trumpet was that from then on, there's not been a believer died in 2,000 years. If that is not true, then Jesus, what he said to, to, at Lazarus' tomb, the hour is coming and it now is. When they that hear the voice of the Son of Man will live, and all they that hear will live. But he that lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Can I tell you that's the kind of never die that I believe? Come on. It's that we do not die. We've already got our resurrection life. Are you hearing what I'm saying? In other words, come on, somebody. Born twice, die once. Hallelujah. Born once, die twice. But I'd rather live and believe in Him and know that the moment in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, He talks about that and He says that every man will come forth in his own order, Christ the first words, afterward those that are Christ at His coming, and then, and, and then, uh, then come at the end. And He talks about that, that uh, He will have delivered up the kingdom to God, that God will be all in all. What He's talking about there is the same thing He was talking about in Daniel where He delivered the theocratic kingdom of Israel back to God and God was not only the king of Israel, but now He's both king of Jew and Gentile, he was God all in all. Somebody said, well, I was kind of hoping for immortality. I, I'm not even saying that's not available because I think that there are one coming, many appearings. 
In other words, Jesus came just like he said he would. He came in the clouds and he came, come on, and a resurrection took place. And literally, there, let, let, me, let, me, let me read you this. Let me read you this. This is three, three different historic documentations of a literal, physical appearing of the Lord. And, and, and it, it's, this, these, these are all documented by, uh, this, this first one is from Josephus, the War of the Jews. I have the volumes of where it's written at, but it says not many days after the Feast of Passover week, somewhere from April 10th through the 17th of 66 AD and on, on the, first, on the 21st day of the month Artemis, May 16th of 66, a certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared, related by those that saw it. For before the, setting, before the sun setting, Chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about in the clouds and surrounding the cities. In the final days of the siege of Jerusalem, there was physically and literally seen above the temple in the clouds, the armies of heaven had followed him on white horses, and voices from under the altar were crying, We are departing hence. The resurrection of those who were crying, How long do you avenge us? was now over. And the days of vengeance were fully executed, and the dead were raised, and they, 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 we are departing hence. A voice from under the altar cried. They were the souls under the altar who were saying in chapter 10 of Revelation, how long? He said, until the seventh trumpet sounds. And the seventh trumpet sounded. Am I making sense? Here's the second. Here's the second that, that's historically documented by the, some of the most respected theologians. Here's the second one. A certain figure appeared of tremendous size, which many saw. And before the setting of the sun, there were suddenly seen in the clouds chariots and armed battle arrays by which the cities of all Judea and its territories were invaded. That was by a guy named Pseudo Hegesippus, translated by Wade Blocker, available from a certain book, and I could give you the documentation on that. Here's the third one. Now it happened after Passover that there was seen from above over the Holy of Holies for the whole night the outline of a man's face. Moreover, in those days were seen chariots of fire and horsemen, a great force flying across the sky near to the ground, coming against Jerusalem on all the land of Judea, and all of them horses of fire and riders of fire. That was recorded by Sephir, Josephon, and a medieval history of ancient Israel, translated by Stephen Bowman, chapter 87, the burning of the temple. Three separate witnesses who record a physical, literal return and seeing stuff in the clouds just like it was prophesied. I got one clap. Puts the resurrection right in that period of time. Puts us in a position where, as believers, I know that if this earthly house is, is dissolved, I have a building of God. I know that my mom is not waiting to get up. She's rock climbing. On her last day, she was confined to a chair, but she's rock climbing now. I have had several experiences where I have seen stuff. I had, when I was 16 years old, I had a visitation of the Lord who told me his Hebrew name. I did not know at the time what his Hebrew name was but said, appeared to me literally in a car. What I'm simply saying is this. Jesus came like he said he would, but he continues to appear. Come on, hallelujah. 
and, 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 and could, listen, somebody said, well, you don't believe there's a, that there could be, listen, the only problem I have with a literal six foot one, brown eyed or blue eyed Jesus is if he comes literally and stays here, where are we going to put him? Is he going, we going to put him in the Middle East where he lives in the temple? And if he does, then I got to go there and see him. In my few moments I had with the President of the United States, it took me a while standing in line to get my opportunity to have an audience with him. Can you imagine the billions of people who would like to see Jesus face to face? And if you limited him, so he said, it's expedient for you that I go away. If I don't go, the comforter won't come. It is important for you. And the promise that he made, hallelujah, that he would come just like he went, was fulfilled. And that everything we've been waiting on, we now have available, except that in the reality of it is, we could literally have Jesus walk through the wall today. Somebody said, well, uh, what about, uh, I, I've had people argue about, well, what, you know, well, what about, don't you believe in bodily resurrection? Yes, I believe in bodily, I believe we get a body just like Jesus. Not this one. What is sown is not what's raised. My mother does not want that same body she had. I think I want a 33-year-old one, I don't know. But he'll change our vile bodies to be fashioned like his glorious body. And that body could appear, it could disappear. It could walk through walls, it could eat, it could show up. Listen, Jesus is appearing to many people in many ways. I am not doing away with the Jesus. I'm saying you don't have to wait to see him. Hallelujah. I'm trying to tell you that we got a present reality that right now in this moment, I can come boldly to the throne of grace. I can access his presence and have a private audience with him right now. And somehow that's not enough for us because I don't know if we really get the reality of it because we're waiting on some physical, tangible thing to happen. And you know what? If that happens and I'm wrong about it, I'm cool with that. But I can tell you that the events we try to hang that on are not in our future. I am trying to tell you that the events that we hang that on, if we got to go through hell on earth for seven years first, and then that can happen, has already been fulfilled. And what we need to realize is that there is a king right now seated on the throne who will sit there until every enemy has been made his footstool. What I am trying to tell you is that the millennium began right after the tribulation of those days. And we have been in the reign of Christ, defeating enemies and ruling and reigning with him right now. And it is an ongoing reality because I don't think the thousand years are are. are at all a certain amount of time, just like he says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and all the fowls of the mountain are mine. That doesn't mean he don't own the cattle on a thousand one hills. It is a term that means it denotes fullness or, or completion. He will sit there until every enemy has been brought underfoot. And what we uh, must do is begin to wake up and realize we are a part of that ongoing reality and that the angels of God and those who have gone on before us, according to Hebrews chapter 11, are in the great cloud of witnesses and they are cheering us on to the finish line. Hallelujah. And I bet you if I stopped for a moment and took a, a toll, there's some of you who have had some experiences with some of your loved ones. You've either been with them when they were dying and you saw them talking to somebody from the other side, or they've showed up in your dreams. Come on, somebody. I'm okay. It's exactly right. Hallelujah. <laughs> exactly right. I got a new body now. Hallelujah. It is a spiritual body. Come on, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body, but it is a body. Same kind Jesus has got. 
I don't know where his physical body's at because he's not standing in here. So whatever kind of body that is. See, these folks that got up from the dead in Matthew 27, I don't see them walking around here. But that doesn't mean they're not very much alive. And that doesn't mean that maybe the veil would be pulled back. That maybe in the ultimate conclusion of all of this, when heaven and earth are completely consummated and come together, that veil will be removed and we can see everything like it is or be like Adam where we know angels by their name. Come on, we can walk with God in the cool of the day and also know the realm of the earth and be able to operate in the earth. But we know both realms that we not only are in and out of one or the other, but we brought them both together and heaven and earth come together. Hallelujah, because in the beginning, heaven and earth were together. Genesis 1 verse 6 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of the, not 1 6, but Genesis 1 6 says, He divided the water waters which were above and the waters which were beneath, and he used a firmament, and he called that firmament heaven, capital H-E-A-V-E-N, and God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. He lived in a garden. In Genesis 1, it begins with the garden. In Revelation 21 and 22, it ends with the garden. It ends with no tree of the knowledge of good and evil and no snake in this garden. It ends with the heavens and the earth brought back together in one. Hallelujah. And it's brought together in the person of Jesus Christ that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he would gather together in one all things in heaven, and all things that are earth, even in Him. I had a friend, and I, I, I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to believe at this point. But I had a bishop friend, my best friend. Had a stroke. He was forty-seven years old. I was preaching a meeting in Detroit, and the sheriff of that county called me and said, "Man, your bishop friend just shot himself." I said, "You got to be kidding me." I said, "Man, there's no way that's not true." He said, "Len, I'm standing over his body right now." And I tell you, I got to tell you, man, that put me in a tailspin like you can't believe because he was my, one of my best buds. He was as close to me as a brother. And so I struggled with that for a long time. And I came home and my daughter-in-law said to me, she said, my daughter-in-law's a doctor. She said, you wouldn't be mad at him if he died from a heart attack, would you? I said, no. You wouldn't be mad at him if he died from a stroke, would you? No. She said, his brain is an organ. It malfunctioned. So I was worried about him for a long time. Again, you can, y'all probably, I probably, I'm almost hesitant to even talk about this stuff because people think you're crazy. But about a month or two later, I was in a hotel room and he walked in that hotel room and talked to me and he said, I'm all right. I'm sorry I left you too soon. And he said a few things to me. My wife knows that I'm not emotional. I don't get physically, I don't get emotionally like I do right when I'm talking about this stuff. But she could see I was visibly moved. She said, I know something really, you had some kind of experience because I could see it all over you. I had a second event with that. Now, the, that time it could have been a dream. I might have been in the body or out of the body. I don't know. But it was very real to me. And all I'm simply trying to tell you is our loved ones are not as far away as you think they are. They're very much alive. And in light of eternity, we're going to see them. And what Paul's saying is, I don't want you to be ignorant about this, that you sorrow not even as others which don't have any hope. Because them that sleep in Jesus, God did bring with him. And then from now on, those of us alive and remain will be caught up together within the clouds, watch this, to meet the Lord in the air. Here's what's really cool. The Greek word for air there is not oranus. It's A-E-M-I. And Strong's Concordance translates it to breathe or to expire or to exhale.
What he's simply saying is the moment you take your last breath, to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. That's what changed from then on out. Believers don't sleep. That's the mystery. And that was also hung. 1 Corinthians 5, 15, the very last verse, hangs that on the fact that he says the strength of sin is the law, and it's what gives death a sting. But in the removal of the law and the old covenant, because when the temple was destroyed, now the way into the most holy place was made available, and those who could not ascend into heaven up till then was now open. And that's why the temple of God was opened in heaven, and it was seen in his temple, the ark of his testament. They are alive and well. Hallelujah. I think I've covered that pretty good. Amen.